0: Welcome to Workforce RX with Futuro Health, where future focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. The disconnect between workers looking for jobs and employers looking for workers continues to bedevil the U.S. economy, adding urgency to the search for solutions to the skills gap that is partly responsible for the trend. One resource, economists, Workforce development experts, employers, educators, and policymakers turn to for insights on these questions is the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. That's why I'm happy to welcome the Director of Research at the Center to Workforce Rx today. In that role, Dr. Jeff Stroll focuses on how to quantify skills and better understand competencies in the ever-changing workplace. He also leads investigations into the supply and demand of education and how education enhances career opportunities for today's workforce. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff.
1: Thank you for having me, Yvonne. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you. I'm such a big fan of the center and I've often quoted uh, many of the reports over the years. Perhaps you can start by giving our audience a quick overview of your work and your current focus.
1: Thank you. Well, historically, the center started bringing together research at the nexus of Education and labor market as they overlap. Most higher education researchers don't think about the labor market, and most labor market economists tend to treat education as a dummy and a regression. And so there's a space to look at the overlap and the articulation between the two, and I think that is where we started. Now, my work, along with our director, has focused on equity and understanding why it is and how it is and where it is that we have socioeconomic differentials in outcomes and have developed a basic model of using test scores to start from a even based to then identify differences in test scores to make the strong statement that why we believe that education is a great equalizer is in fact it is not. Uh, We have systemic biases in outcomes that just are not explained by college readiness. And I think that's a really important message as we think uh, about outcomes in a kind of blame-the-victim framework, that there are structural inequalities in place that hold back the most talented, low-income, and minority youth. So that's a real mainstay through much of our work. Uh, Second line, of course, is we wouldn't be the center on education and the workforce if we weren't doing work on the workforce. So we also do an awful lot of uh, investigation on emerging data and how they can become modernized labor market information, knowing that most of our uh, labor market information, how we try to think about alignments, with identifying skills, really go back to the 1930s, uh, trying to develop an unemployment insurance wage record data system. And all of a sudden we're in a modern age with a lot of different data and people are struggling to figure out how to use this to be accurate labor market information to move the needle so that we can basically catch up with the modern age. And so a lot of the work that we're doing today is on trying to specify Economic value by exact program of study by institution, trying to understand how that interacts with localized labor markets, and also to turn that around. And you, uh, Bond, so helped spearhead a lot of this work in California with the Launch Board and the Community College System. How do Institutions turn around and use labor market information to rationalize their enrollment decisions and resource allocation. I mean, we, the worst possible thing that we can do is have a great program that's oversubscribed because all we end up doing is creating really smart people who don't have a job or at least have a job in field and working in field is really critical to finding economic opportunity. So, you know, trying to create that feedback loop is really where we're sitting at these days. And then also using that information to think about counseling for the actual students to help guide them.
0: Jeff, you mentioned so many substantive areas. Let me just go back to even the first point that you made in terms of equity and what explains the socioeconomic differential. Does that tie into what's happening in many big systems, which are rethinking standardized tests um, and the use of standardized tests as being uh, somewhat biased?
1: Yeah, that's a hard question uh, because on the one hand, our center bases some of this research on using those standardized exams as a baseline. So, if we think about the bias in the SAT and other tests, we're sometimes thinking about the historic trajectory that gets you to the door of taking the exam. And we have, you know. A history rife with, you know, like using the word yacht and having people not knowing yacht because it's not in their culture, and so you do have those kind of biases. Now, ETS will claim, or the College Board will claim to have removed these. I really don't follow this as much, and so I think we do have a problem in post-secondary education of what do we replace standardized tests with. Let's just say, for uh, sake of argument, that they're bias-free. What do we replace them with? And is that going to be a better solution? And is that going to provide the university system with something that is more fair and more clear? And so I, I personally believe in a portfolio. I think the test can be guiding for us to understand someone's level of college readiness. But we also have to understand that it's a probability statement. I mean. The graduation differential between 1,000 and 1,200 or 1,250 on the SAT is more explained by selectivity of institution that somebody goes to than it is by the differences in those test scores. It's only built to predict freshman GPA. No one uses it to predict graduation rate, right? And so we need to use it to understand whether or not a student is college-prepared maybe stop there and then take a look at a broader portfolio of things that someone has in their qualifications.
0: And in the third point that you are making about the use of labor market information, I loved uh, many of your reports, but one of your report is about the earning power of many of the STEM pathways. And yet uh, many of these degrees and programs are woefully undersubscribed by students What's your advice in terms of matching students and majors or degrees to the labor market, needed by the labor market?
1: There's two levels. One is very systemic. There was a very good article in the New York Times a few days ago about the insights of students who go to the selective test based high schools across the country, mostly in New York. And one of the things that was shown in there is the removal of advanced courses from some low-income schools make it so that students aren't prepared for extremely rigorous courses in high school and then prepared for extremely rigorous courses in college. Not that they can't do it, but they're not given the resources along the way, so they hit the high school without having had algebra one. So that's one part of the problem, which is very uh, resource allocation across the entire system. That's going to be a long-term problem for us to resolve, and it's one that needs resolution because it's the pipeline. You know, we got about three million high school students every year, and about 2.2, 2.6 million high school enrollees, and so. If they're not coming in prepared, they're never going to make it through STEM, and then they're going to major switch and things like that. So that's one part of the problem. Another part of the problem, which has really been, uh, I think, investigated or brought to our awareness over the last mm, 20, 30 years, which is role models and expectational formation. I mean, if you go into a university, say MIT in 1965, your professors would have been male and they would have been white. And so if you were neither of the above, you didn't have a lot of indications that you were welcome in that culture. If we look at economists, still today, uh, women are woefully underrepresented. They hit glass ceilings in the faculty promotion, in the working world. Uh, and so they run into multiple barriers of a culture that it doesn't welcome them. So, a lot of good work is going on trying to address this from multiple angles. As we know, first-time college-going students generally don't have the same type of counseling resources inside the home. If you don't have a parent who went to college, you can barely sort out how to navigate the complexities of college with financial aid and major choice and da 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 da. da. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence without counseling, students fall down on the opinions of their peers. So if their peers are out on the West Coast, one of my friend's sons is off-grown grass out in Oregon now that it's legal, right? So he fell in to a place he's happy. Right, So we need to find this balance of counseling with good information to tell people you can actually do this thing, when they historically have been told you can't do this thing, and also try to balance interest versus earnings. And this, I think, is a very big problem. We did uh, some work with the Gates Foundation on their value commission and looking at redistributing to re-equalize or, or find equity in distribution by men and women in majors. Well, guess what? If you balance gender and majors, you have no nurses, you have no teachers, you have no preschool, and so we have a social problem. And uh, we rely on, in this case, women to do low-paying, what we call ICP, intellectual and caring professions. And you know, it's the society's benefit to have cheap labor source in these fields. And Not pipe them into STEM. And so we need to figure out how to have this balance, right? And uh, it's a challenge. So it's a dual challenge, right? In creating it as being an interesting place. uh, And so having better examples about what the workplace looks like so people who are interested uh, or can find an interest in it because if you didn't grow up in a science based home why would you be interested in the STEM field you have no role model and then secondly i think preparation i think we need to be much more serious about the preparation necessary to be ready for upper level calculus i mean i failed out of college when i first started and that calculus was the bone and it took me 10 years to get good enough to go back and finish college so I mean, I can imagine, I come from you know, a middle-class background, and so I had a lot of support. Imagine if you had no support.
0: Well, to a prior point of yours, which is around STEM, I remember hearing the uh, head of Harmony Mudd, which is an engineering college, talk that in the olden days or in the prior days, the framing used to be you look to your left and you look to your right, and one out of the three of you will be gone. Right. Yeah. And she said that um, it took a lot of work on the culture to be able to reframe it to say, you know, you can look to your right and your left and all three of you can succeed. You need to not only put in the work, but you need to ask for help early enough. Mm -hmm. So it it was very interesting uh, on the framing in order to uh, change the numbers. Right. And their their success for the women has really risen as a result of that revised framing. That's great. So, Jeff, um, you know, there was a Washington Post article not, uh, you know, a few months ago where it talked about the fact that there were 10 million open jobs uh, with about 8.4 million people looking for jobs. So basically the employers couldn't find the workers and the workers couldn't find the work. And those numbers have gone up and down since then. But could we have foreseen this level of friction in the labor market?
1: Depends on from which perspective. Uh, Pre-pandemic, perhaps not. You know, maybe in a science fiction story, understanding what happened with wanting to be near another human being and that becoming dangerous and the great impact that that had on human touch industries. Theoretically, yes, that part would have been predictable. I don't know uh, about the differentials in labor market participation as women have been Uh, locked into the home on child and family care, causing some of the labor shortage. So that's one aspect. It's a little unclear if we would have been able to predict it. Now we have had long-term declines in labor market participation that should make some of this predictable. So we gotta remember that we were actually peaking into boom times prior to the pandemic. I mean, we are we had 10 year ramp up following the Great Recession. So it was 2016, 17, 18, the economy was beginning to warm up and we're already were hearing skills gap problems from the employers. So some of the frictional issues really stem back to the employers treating the market as a spot market for workers in 93. We had at the beginning what was identified as the jobless recovery in which employers moved from a layoff to a FIRE model. And in doing so, they basically treat workers as a spot commodity. So you've got an increase in demand. You, you think you can instantaneously find a worker, and there's been a disinvestment in the kind of training that's necessary to take people from qualifying to productivity. Now we're seeing in this time with these uh, very tight labor market is the return of both incentives and a lot of training, right, from internal. So we are trying to deal with the friction. One of the things that I really think wasn't predictable, which is the great resignation aspect of this, let me just say, hopefully this recovery, is we now have some of the highest quit rates seen in the history of recorded job transactions in the United States. We had 64 million people quit their jobs between August and August 2020 to 2021, and we had about 74 million hires. I mean, it is an amazing amount of churn in the labor market. And some of that is driven by restructuring that occurs with a shock to the economy, like the pandemic moving away from on-touch to uh, non-touch services, right? Or less touch services and that kind of change up. Those things, specific, not predictable, in general predictable. The economy goes through structural changes and those structural changes historically in the United States have led us upwards in skill requirements and have introduced uh, or been accompanied by automation. I really expect this pandemic to really be accompanied by automation to reduce human touch in the services industry. But the thing is I don't think we should be afraid of that part because uh, Historically, a lot of automation has actually been a labor complement, not a labor substitute. Uh, so hopefully this friction, and you're, you're quite right, it's, it's painful. Hopefully it is, in fact, short term. Um, I'm not as hopeful as others that it's going to be gone tomorrow. I think these type of things take some time. And so we're probably looking at, I'm going to guess, a year, maybe two of residual frictions, and they're going to differ by sector, Um, because we've got to remember that this this pandemic slammed the less educated portion of the labor market, and the BA portion of the labor market, computer uh, programmers, they actually increased employment during the uh, height of the pandemic. So there's different pressures going on simultaneously here.
0: You know, every crisis creates an opportunity. So what opportunity is created by this moment? It's a good
1: question. You know, I think it's an opportunity for employers to put some more skin in the game and to really re-engage investment in the workforce, you know, on site. And so from the educator's perspective, I think this could be enhanced work-based learning opportunities, which especially need to be linked to program. Currently, my understanding is too many work-based learning opportunities are not attached to programs so students have to wander around campus to find them if you attach them to a program it's a delivery they're delivered to the student rather than the student having to discover them and then it might help us alleviate some of the known inequities in availability of internships of apprenticeships of other forms of work-based learning so that idea of bringing the workplace and the classroom closer and closer together and provide diverse opportunities to a diverse population of students, I think would be one angle to take on this. Because what we need is more and more alignment between education and training and job requirements so that we maintain ability to move with the punches, which we have. I mean, that's one of the benefits of the American education system, is the idea that we have a system that moves with the punches. And in that uh, ideas of work-based learning, is stop treating training as something that is bad. I mean, we have a view that training is a bad thing and isn't as good as education. And there's reasons for that which go back to race and class-based tracking. But on the other hand, a large portion of the workforce goes to school but also changes jobs and every single time you change a job you need some form of training to find a new occupation or a new job and so training while different than we traditionally conceptualize education is extremely critical and it's really time for us to level them on the same field i really look at it rather than education and training but is an overall human capital development and having that system be able to meet the student and the worker where they are. So sometimes you're in school, which will be our formal education, but sometimes you're in the labor market and you need something that's gonna help you make a move from where you are, unemployment or a declining job or a bad job to a better job. And oftentimes that requires two months, four months of training, a certification, all which are considered, you know, training. people look down their noses at it and they shouldn't. And hopefully this is an opportunity for us to see them as complements rather than exclusive elements that one person gets training and one person gets education. But I'll repeat, that problem exists because training has a very bad history when we look through the lens of vocational education and race and class-based tracking. So we have to figure out how to solve that problem while gaining the benefits of enhanced training investments.
0: That brings up, what is your read of the big decline in higher education enrollment across the nation as reported by the National Student Clearinghouse then?
1: Uh, It's a tough one. I don't know enough about it, but my instinct is uh, about uncertainties in the labor market things dealing with home, having to deal with home atmosphere, especially for women in that case. Uh, and also, not feeling as though virtual learning in the college environment is worth the kind of uh, money that you need to pay. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect that isn't talked about a lot is the fact that education is a probability statement and often it is treated as something that's exact. So we say to students, get an education and you will have opportunity. That's a real statement of certainty, where, in fact, there's a good chance that you'll get a good opportunity, but there is no guarantee that you'll get a good opportunity. So in combination with seeing the questionable value of virtual learning in the college environment and uncertainty in the labor market such that the education is not a a straight-up guarantee, for opportunity could be driving some of this down. Now I expect it to return maybe in slightly hybrid format, right? And I don't mean hybrid in uh, virtual versus in person learning, but in the skill buckets that we put together. You know, I foresee that the traditional degrees will hold their place in this, but if we look at the data on certification in particular, we see that certifications are held by people at all levels of education, and when they get them, they get a significant earnings premium. And what this really suggests is that formal education needs updating, and updating can occur through some of these short bites. I look at through the lens of certification so they have a particular value because of their validations and clarity of what they are signaling, because they are really good when they're good. They're very good measures of validation that somebody can do something like HVAC or Delco breaks or management certifications, things like that. And so I foresee that kind of hybrid coming up where you get a little more short bites, but on top of a foundation of formal education.
0: Well, I believe it's your center that originated the phrase, you know, degrees are important, but skills matter.
1: Yeah, that's probably my boss. hip.
0: Right, right, right. And then um, hence why certifications and credentialing becomes important in order to get those bites, as you've mentioned. Uh, Anything else you want to mention? I know you're active in the credentialing-as-you-go efforts. Anything on the horizon that excites you there?
1: Well, you know, we have a big problem in this area, as you're most likely aware, is information. There's so many certifications providers and not enough information on which ones you know matter. That I hope to see more transparent information on certifications. We're now part of the uh, major U.S. labor market survey. The Current Population Survey asks about whether or not you have a certification. Uh, problem there is they don't ask which one. You know I think it's sensible to look at what somebody's doing for work to infer what it is, but it would be nice to get more information, work that was done there in California on skill builders is another area that could be very exciting, understanding uh, how course clusters lead to enhanced skills, right? The focus on the short-term certifications and awards lets us understand uh, how much reactivity education can enable the workforce. And I think this is really important, and that probably is going to start to raise questions about accreditation, right? Is like, how quickly can formal education react to the market? And if it can't react quickly and we still need it, what do we do? So alternative metrics, uh, which are important because we don't want snake oil salesmen out there poaching off the uh, federal dollar, And you know, as we saw with crises with uh, for-profits and student loan debt, right? We want to make sure, we have as much accountability and as much clarity of students on what they're getting, that they are, in fact, getting what they're paying for. And so hopefully this focus on these short-term credentials will actually help that effort.
0: Are there some missteps that keep repeating themselves when it comes to education and the workforce?
1: That's a really tough question because what we have is a national agreement to have a free market system with limited regulation. And so we're faced with letting the market create experiments and sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't. I think about George Will. He said about the uh, banking crisis in the 1980s, he says, we have a strange breed of capitalism of which the profits are private, but we socialize the losses. In many ways, that's the kind of misstep that we keep making, right, is having public dollar fund R&D, basically, on educational experiments, but not hold private parties accountable for student losses. And the education system as a whole, I mean, I think this whole student debt problem, which is indicative of the other problems you're mentioning with the failure with for-profits at different points in time. We need to figure out how to make accountability, and this is where we are seeing data systems move so that we're much more able to provide students with the information. Now, I think the next move here, and maybe this is a misstep too, is the assumption that students, people, are able to make rational decisions with massive amounts of information, and I think that's a mistake. If I'd go to some of these college websites, You know, I got a 1,000 courses, and I got this and that, and a bunch of, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Uh, And so I can't imagine how students with less informational literacy would deal with these problems. So we need to find a way to help summarize the massive amounts of information to a set of information that's critical. So the idea of data as transparency and accountability is an actionable statement. We just can't lay data on the table or lay data on the internet and say, well, there you go. You ought to be able to figure it out. Well, I mean, I really challenge a PhD to go sort their way through the data that's out there and provide clear guidance to a 17-year-old that will help them balance understanding, setting a direction for their life. It's tough, you know, and we need to do a lot of work in this area. Uh, so, that might be another assumption the assumption that the free market will solve all problems with better information. I don't, A, we don't have a free market. That's part of the problem. And two, there's such a thing as too much information. You just think about the cereal aisle. You know, if you got a thousand boxes of cereal, you're probably going to go back to the same four, right? So, there's an informational overload problem that we have to, to figure our way through in this education and workforce space.
0: I remember when I was back at the California Community Colleges, uh, looking at how do we make data actionable for students and looking at the career guidance, what kind of tool we could create. Uh, In the focus groups that we did with the Young Invincibles, it came down to sort of three elements, three factors for decision making of of young people. One was interest and aptitude and and how do they match programs. The second is actually commuting radius. Mm. um, And the third is earning power. Uh, so th- those became the most important out of all the other ways of making decisions.
1: Oh, well, that's very interesting.
0: So, so Jeff, um, what has been your most significant study or report or study or report that you're most excited about?
1: Whew. Probably my favorite work has been our separate and unequal work, which is really a whole body of work, which is on trying to understand socioeconomic disparities in uh, college goingness and labor market outcomes. And that went back then, and we did a report called Born to Win, School to Lose, showing how low-income, high-performing students end up with worse outcomes than low-scoring, high-income students. To quote my boss, he said in the United States, it's better to be uh, rich than smart. So I think that body of work is really important for people to think about because if they're like me, they grew up in an environment of education being a, you know, great equalizer that we have a meritocracy and why it is we do have elements of meritocracy in our society. We also have a lot of obstacles to merit and, and how it shifts things. So I think that's an interesting uh bit of work, and now with the resurgence of affirmative action cases hitting the Supreme Court, we've done a couple of experimental pieces looking at what would happen if you had an SAT-only admissions policy and how that would affect the racial distribution in the selective institutions, and, you know, it's pretty profound, It's not as people would expect, and one of the pieces that really pops up here is that all groups, have benefited by different forms of, let me just say, affirmative action. People might not want to apply that to white, but there's, if you went to a test only admissions model, something around 50%, 45% of white students in the most selective institutions would be displaced uh, out of those institutions and replaced by high scoring white or students of other ethnicity race and ethnicity who didn't go and a lot of that gets back to expectational formation right and so i think that's an interesting bit of work for people to consider because in this body there's this underlying belief that uh, these low-income and minority students can't handle the selective institutions and the data we have based on students going to these selective institutions do demonstrate that they are able to do well and that if you move them up the tiers of selectivity holding test score constant, their graduation rate goes up, which is counter to some things in some amicus briefs on affirmative action, the idea that we're doing a disservice for minorities by putting them in challenging schools, you know, which is a crock. Uh, But anyways, we (laughs) won't go down that line too much. But those are really important bodies of work, at least to me. Other pieces have gotten more press, but I think those ones are pretty important.
0: All of us are focused on diversity, equity, inclusion. And so any advice on DEI as it relates to what students study? I think you alluded a little bit to counseling. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, this is a question whose answer changes from the perspective of who's asking it. And the reason I say that is just yesterday, uh, I was part of a uh, technical working group trying to think about developing curriculum for a graduate program and the person who was working on this said people ask me why we don't have a graduate course on diversity or equity one or the other and he said that it's because it should be part of every course that we have and so i think that's one piece of advice you know equity dei it's measurable at times but it's also a contextual environment of which we need to move ourselves into so that's a systemic reform issues, so if I was a systems administrator, I would be answering it in those terms. As a student thinking about it, DEI is an abstract concept, right? It's more about, I would think, opportunity for the individual. And This goes back to that New York Times article I was mentioning about uh, students in the uh, high performing test-based high schools around the country, New York in particular. And they themselves, even though uh, sixty some odd percent were Asian, said it's very diverse because you're you know there's there's melting pot of Asian ethnicity in the United States that people don't recognize. And so for these students at that school, they worked their butts off to get there. And for them, looking down the hallway, they see people from thirty different countries or forty different countries as first gen low-income students. And so DEI for them isn't the way an academic is thinking about it. It's hard-earned opportunity that's sitting in front of them. So from the individual's perspective, the answer is not really about what about DEI, but what about better understanding about the frontier of opportunity of which they're capable of achieving. And you know what was it? You know the uh, was it George Bush, you know, the tyranny of low expectations. Well, for those individual students, DEI is something that society attains when they take on the challenge of rising to their highest potential, knowing that there's a lot of systemic obstacles, because so I want to be very careful and not play a blame-the-victim game, right? I think we have a endogeneity going on here, and so for those students, is believing that they can do it and many of them do because we see them making it but um, don't be limited by the choices that are immediately in front of you and this goes back with the counseling right is that regretfully we don't put a huge investment in the counseling and we need to because we lose so many students of great talent that the, the country uh suffers the loss of that talent. So our work back with with the stuff that we've done with the test based stuff, we lose about a fifth of the high school class not making it through college. It's about uh, fifteen or twenty percent of the top half of the high school class, but you know, above a thousand in the S C D don't graduate. They don't graduate college. And so they get all the debt and none of the benefits of a college education. And so this DEI problem is if it's meshed together like this and there's all these systemic obstacles in the way. But on the other hand, the more we can do to help encourage these students to try and get rid of the obstacles that makes it so they don't even get listened, don't even make it through the door. And so it's a hard problem of which we all have to band together to resolve. I mean, it's a systemic approach and an individual approach. and I. Uh, Currently, I think that the barriers to the individuals and the systemic obstacles is probably the biggest part of the problem.
0: Well, I, I like the the phrasing of rising to our, you know, everyone's highest potential despite the systemic or the the barriers that are in front of all of us. And I, I think all of us who are in workforce development or touch higher education, uh, what can we do to? Uh, reduce some of those frictions that are in the way. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeff, we are uh, wrapping up, and I was wondering if you had any final comments for our audience.
1: Just thank you for the uh, opportunity to chat with you. It's great to see you, and uh, great topic. And I hope uh, it uh, impacts your listenership out there.
0: It's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Jeff, for being with us. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America.